Thank you. Titus chapter 3 this evening, please, and the young people are dismissed to the back. Titus chapter number 3. And let's go ahead and stand, please. We're going to read verses 1 through 8. Will be our passage for tonight. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. And let's pray. Father, I pray that I would have understood your words clearly, and I pray that we would understand them, that your spirit would teach us not simply the content but the meaning, and that your spirit would give us the grace to do that which we have been instructed. And I pray this for us in Christ's name. Amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, of course, we're dealing with the pastorals, and we're dealing with them chronologically. First, First Timothy, then Titus, and then the last book or letter that Paul will write, at least that we have in Scripture, which is Second Timothy. All of them are dealing with what's going on in a church or what should go on in a church. Each of them have their own little bit of a different perspective. Second Timothy is dealing heavily with the subject matter of loyalty, of faithfulness to Christ. And that colors the letter. We will talk about that when we get to it. The dominant theme of the book of Titus is good works. This is something that the people of Crete did not naturally gravitate to. And this is something that is a, a, a message and uh, an ambition of the church. In Titus 1.16, Paul writes, They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him. They say they know Him, but their works contradict. Being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate, unable to make the right judgment. Titus 2.7, In all things showing thyself a pattern of good works. Pastors are to be examples of good works. 
in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. In Titus chapter 2 and verse number 14, of Jesus who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Titus 3.1, which we read just a moment ago, put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. Chapter 3, verse 8, the conclusion of our paragraph. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will, that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. And so our salvation is clearly designed to produce good works. And in the course of the epistle, Paul outlines the kind of works he has in mind. What are good works? What would be a good work for us to do? So let's begin then by looking at the passage. And I want to point out to you, first of all, That in verses 1 through 3, I would understand Paul to be making the argument that we needed to be saved because without salvation we could not do any good works. It's not possible for lost people to do the kind of works that God has in mind of being good works. This doesn't mean if I could make the if I could play with our language a little bit, this doesn't mean that they can't do good deeds. They can help the poor, and they can help the needy, and they can build hospitals, and they can give to the Red Cross, and they can support medical mission or medical endeavors around the world. But they can't do the kind of works that God has in mind. They are unregenerated people. They do not have the nature of God. They can do no work that has as its major focus God himself. We needed to be saved because without salvation we could do no good works. As Paul often does, he gives an instruction and then an explanation. Put them in mind. Put them in mind. Part of the pastoral responsibility is to have people's minds on this. Put our minds on these things. What things? What are the good works that God would want to talk about? Right out of the gate. Right relationship to the government. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers. To obey magistrates. To be ready to every good work. Now he gives three categories here, principalities. That is the word that we know as the English word arch. The leader, the top, the head. Sometimes those are angelic authorities and as it's the context here insists, they are human authorities. Powers, that just simply means authority. All kinds of authority. Magistrates is a word that refers to superiors. I don't think Paul is trying to walk us through the strata of Roman government any more than Paul would be interested in walking us through the layers of American government. But he is telling us this. Be in submission to them. 
be subject to them. And of course, we know, and I'm just going to mention this, we know that there are periodically biblical mandates that prohibit us from being in submission to the government. We get that. Paul knows that. We know that. But the general disposition of God's people, a really good work for us to do, is, right, and this really is, folks, this is a very difficult thing to navigate. Right? If, if, we, if we don't really think about it, it's simple. But if we really do think about it, it becomes very difficult. There is one sense in which we are not in competition with human government. But on the other hand, folks, the gospel message is intended to produce a generation of people who live contrary to the world. And if there are enough of them and their desires for political leadership are brought into light, it is going to tip over the apple cart. There's going to be real conflict. But our general disposition should be to be prepared for all good works, starting with being in submission to the government. And again, folks, right? do you not find that particularly challenging in light of this present administration? Can any true Bible believer look at the leadership we have at the federal level and have any kind of respect for it? What is respectable about it? There is very little that is respectable about it. What is respectable about our present governor to this point? A man who obviously negotiated his way into the governor's mansion by promising to reward the sitting governor with a senator position. How respectable is this? And yet the biblical mandate is to be in subjection to them. Paul tells us to pray for them. But it's a lot easier to complain about them than it is to honor them, as Peter tells us. Honor the king. Honor the king. Let us not be guilty of giving lip service to praying for these people when our hearts detest them. Put them in mind to be ready to every good work. Subject to principalities, magistrates, authorities. Paul continues on in verse number 2 to speak evil of no man. No man. Right? We've broadened now outside and we find this in the pastorals that sometimes the, the focus of the message is to those within the assembly and sometimes the focus of the message is to those outside of the assembly to speak evil of no man. To be no brawlers. To not be fighters. But instead, but instead gentle Fair and mild is the idea. Showing all meekness unto, here it is again, all men. Being under control, not out of control. Not in a rage, not on a rant, not in a tantrum. These are the good works that God has in mind. 
Again, folks, I say it all the time, and I, I really mean it. I'm grateful for whoever is working in the nursery this evening and for those in the choir and for those that serve in an official capacity for our deacons, for our Sunday school teachers, for those that work in the academy, for Kelly, for all the labor that you do having no office. But when God talks about good works, he has much more in mind than simply a ministry position. Don't talk bad about people. Be gentle and mild with people. Have it in your mind to be in submission to government every imaginable place that it is possible. Why is that? Here's the instruction, verse number 3. And this is why I say that verses 1 through 3 contain this idea, we need to be saved because without being saved, we could do no good works. Who does verses 1 and 2? We do. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish. And that, I, that little construction there sometimes means at one point in time, an indefinite point of time, whenever it was that you were lost, before you got saved, this is what characterized you. This is what Paul is arguing. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. We needed to be saved because apart from salvation we could do no good works. These are, these are bad works, and these are the root and fountain of bad works found in verse number 3. Foolish, a word describing our moral compass, not our intellectual ability. This is not ed- uneducated, undegreed. This is unwilling to be instructed, unwilling to be taught disobedient, deceived. We thought we were right in this. Serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice, ill will to people, envy, and oh, what a powerful force envy is in American politics. Hateful, and therefore hating one another. This is what characterized us. And by the way, folks, I would argue that the Bible holds this to be true. If you were saved as a five-year-old, you lived it out as a five-year-old would live it. If you were saved as a 50-year-old, you lived it out as a 50-year-old lived it. But this is characteristic of all lost people. Envious, malicious, hateful people. This is what characterizes so much of their lives. So we needed to be saved because we could not do good works without being saved. Secondly, in verses 4 through 7, Paul makes the point that saving us was a good work that God did for us. God did a good work. He saved us. 
But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not of works by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now the people in verses 1 and 2, folks, who are filled with envy and malice, and dis- or verse number 3, that are filled with envy and malice and deceit, they're not going to save themselves. They're going to argue their positions from the perspective that they are right. Their lusts are going to be defended. Their desires and appetites are going to be excused. That's what we did. That's how we are. But at some point in time, verse number four, but after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. And what he's talking about there, folks, is not the incarnation. And he's not talking about the crucifixion. He's talking about that moment in time when we came to know Christ as our Savior. When it happened for us individually, it is closely tied to verse number 3. We ourselves also were sometimes. Okay? No disrespect for the Scripture, folks, but when you read a phrase like that, right, there's a fairy tale kind of dimension to it. Once upon a time. And when we hear once upon a time, we know no specific time. No date is meant. Just once upon a time. And it's put this way because God didn't save us all at once. Some of us were saved at a young age. Some of us in our young adulthood. Some later in life. So there is that undetermined, undefined quality to salvation. But it appeared to us, verse number 4, it came to us individually after that the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared. When God spoke to us and we heard his voice and we responded in faith, that was his gift. And the word love there in verse number four is not the word we might expect. It is not agape. It is instead this word, philanthropy. And this is the reason that I say that verses four through seven explain to us God's good work in saving us. Folks, we were his charity project. We were his charity. He saved us. And Paul here is very clear that we would understand that he saved us because he was merciful and not because we were good. Look at the way it's put in verse number 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done. Because remember, we were foolish, disobedient, driven by ungodly lusts, desires, hateful, acting upon it, malicious, acting upon it. 
not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. And this is, folks, in that salvation, a complete and thorough salvation. I think that's the point that he's making there in the middle of verse number 5. But according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. The only other place that word regeneration is used is in Matthew 19.28. Let me just read it to you. You don't need to turn to it. Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The word renewing refers to the complete and total renovation. When God saved us, folks, he made us all over again. It was a genuine recreation or a new birth or a birth from on high. A whole new being came to life at that moment. And God did this through his spirit and his son, verse number six, which he shed on us abundantly or the renewing of the Holy Ghost, there's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Which he shed on us abundantly. Abundantly. In generosity and in richness. So that when he made us new and declared us righteous, verse number 7, that being justified by his grace, there they are, mercy and grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So as unbelievers, our works were unacceptable. And God did not look at us And see us as trying to do good works and he needed to nudge us along a little bit and help us out. He saw us doing unacceptable works and we needed to be completely remade. And in his grace and mercy, this is what he did through the ministry of Christ and through the work of his Holy Spirit. And he did this in gracious abundance, more than enough to go around. So we needed to be saved because our works were unacceptable and God did a good work in saving us. And so therefore, verse number 8, our salvation has as its goal that we do good works. Because we couldn't do good works without salvation. And Paul tells us in the book of Ephesians that we are his work. We are his men workmanship, created unto good works. We were made to do good work. We were not just created, folks. We were not just saved to extract all of the blessings from God that we could get. We were saved to do good work. Good work is the Bible defines good work. 
Verse number 8 then, this is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly. That they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. So it's part of Titus's responsibility to keep the truths of verses 1 through 7 in front of the people all the time. It is a faithful thing that he is saying. And I will that you affirm them constantly. The idea there is that Titus needs to be aggressive in asserting it. Now, I would just remind us of this. Right, Paul said at the very beginning that the, that the Cretans were a difficult case. Okay? You do not need to be over the, beat over the head with this. I'm not suggesting that. But it does need to be kept in front of us on a regular basis that God saved us to do good works and he defines what those works are, folks. He does, he does not leave us guessing about what those works are. He is very explicit. Read, go back and read 1 Timothy. He, and, and Titus, he walks through all the demographic, old, young, male, female, slave, master, whether you're pastor, here they are, here are the, here's, here's your case. Okay, here are the works you need to do. Here are the things you need to do. And the goal then of the pulpit is not simply to Right to compel and coerce people. It is, it is not the task of the pulpit to beat you into some kind of submission or to guilt you into this kind of lifestyle, but to persuade you that this is what God has for his people. Again, look at verse number 8. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will, that thou affirm constantly, that you keep in front of them regularly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. That they might take the initiative to themselves. That they might welcome and embrace the responsibility that is theirs to do these kinds of good works. That these good works are the common practice of God's people. This is what he's saying. And he concludes then with this. These things are good and profitable unto men. They are good. They are intrinsically good because God saved people to do good works. The reality, folks, right? And this is taking us back now to to Titus chapter 1. But a profession of salvation that is empty of good works is a questionable profession always. Certainly God's people still have sin in their lives and they have sinful natures. But when getting them to do good works is an ever-ending uphill battle, Paul would call that a red flag. So God has saved us to do good works and those good works are beneficial to mankind. They are beneficial to mankind.
there are some people who will express a desire to change the world. But I would never encourage anybody to have that as a goal. Do good works where you are. Do the things that God wants done where you are in your home, in your place of employment, in the relationships that God has given you. So we are saved so that we might do good works. Let me read to you John chapter 8 and verse number 29. And again, folks, I want to reiterate, I'm grateful, I really am, and I do not express it enough for all that you do. For the work that you, that you perform, the ministry you're engaged in, the money that you give. But let us not think of good works as individual ministry items. But rather the pattern and characteristic of our Christianity that includes... At the head of the list, things like are found in verses 1 and 2. Submission to authority. Not talking badly about people. Being kind and gentle. Not looking for a fight. Not being deliberately contentious. John 8, 29. Jesus described his own self this way. Described himself this way. He that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. All that he did was pleasing. Now we could, folks, go back to verse 3 and point out our emphasis on bad works, but that is not where we are to be oriented as Christians. We are to be oriented to always doing good works, works that are pleasing to the Lord. Let's pray. Well, Father, I pray for us that this would be the characteristic of our lives, that we would be pleasing to you, that we would, in your wisdom, navigate the right relationship to human civil government while we passionately long for the kingdom to come. That we would, in kindness and gentleness and love, Speak the truth of your word to the evil of the world. That we would boldly stand for our Savior and the truth of the Bible, but never be brawlers and contentious. Good works. Always good works. Grant us this grace and skill, please. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. All right, let me make.